You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are worthy of all praise. And we pray that as we begin this new series today in the Lord's Prayer on how Jesus taught us to pray, we pray that you will help us, Lord, to see with fresh eyes what it means to worship a holy Father. Lord, please help us to stand in awe of your holiness, your glory, your majesty, but also to have incredible gratitude that we can call you Father. So as we open your word this morning, Lord, we pray that you will teach us through your spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes when I read my Bible, I wonder what it would be like to be one of the characters in all those stories. I mean, like, you read the story of Moses and how he, like, started off his life in this little basket, was raised by kings, and then ran off into the wilderness for 40 years, saw a burning bush, and then God called him back to lead his people. Then he got to go up on top of Mount Sinai and meet God face to face. That would be such a cool experience. Or what about the story of David, who when he was just a young shepherd boy, had lions and bears attacking his flock. And with God's help, was able to fend them off and kill them with just a slingshot. And how God used David then to become the king of Israel and had all these mighty fights and all these conquests and just all these awesome stories like Paul, who boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ to the nations, going on all these journeys, being able to heal people. Sometimes when I read how God uses people in the Bible, I'm amazed and I just wonder, what would it be like to be a character in the Bible? One of the things that I think most about when I read the Bible is wondering what it would be like to meet Jesus face to face. And part of the reason that I feel that way is when I read the Gospels, I see how Jesus was a brilliant teacher. And just the way that he taught, he just had a way of of getting his message across. And I wonder, what are some of the things that he could teach me? How would he show me how to live? What would he say to me? And one of the things that Jesus taught about is prayer, which I think is kind of interesting Because when Jesus taught his disciples about prayer, they were in a culture that was completely immersed in prayer. They were instructed in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to pray every time they go through a doorway. They were supposed to pray in the morning and dedicate their time with God. They were supposed to wear wristbands that reminded them to pray. They were immersed in prayer, yet they didn't know how to pray. And I think one of the biggest reasons that they didn't know how to pray was because one of their biggest examples on how to pray were the Pharisees. And when the Pharisees wanted to pray, they would go out in the street corners where there were a crowded place and they would start praying loudly so that everyone could hear. And they weren't really talking to God. They were kind of almost doing a brag session, talking about how awesome they were. But Jesus prayed differently. Jesus, instead of going out in the public and praying loudly, Jesus would retreat. He would go away from everyone else. And he would take time, just him and his father. 
And the disciples noticed this. And when Jesus told them that he would teach them how to pray, they were super excited and eager to hear what he had to say. And I, I love that because as a pastor, I often hear people say, David, I don't really feel confident praying. I don't know how to pray. I don't want to pray. And Brandon and I are really excited to do this sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. Because we're hoping that through our teaching on Jesus' teaching, you will gain confidence in your prayer life. That you will be able to get out of some of the ruts that you might feel you're in when you pray. And hopefully you will experience a deeper prayer life through this series. And the way this is going to work is we're going to break down each statement of the Lord's Prayer um, each week. Today we're talking about our Father in Heaven. And as I mentioned, during this series, Brandon and I are doing it together. Some weeks Brandon will preach, some week I'm going to preach. And today we're going to do something a little different in that we're both going to be preaching today. Um, We're going to kind of take turns switching off and um, doing different elements. And I think it's, I'm excited about it. It's going to be fun. Um, But what I want to invite you guys now to stand with me and let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Um, Today, we're going to use a new version um, that's a little different. It's just slightly tweaked using some modern language um, from the one you might be used to be saying. So please follow the words up on the screen. And after we are done with saying the Lord's Prayer together, Brandon will come up and talk to us about how God is our Father. So let's say this together. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. One of the practices that has really revolutionized my walk with God, uh, really throughout the time I've been a Christian, especially over the last 12 years, has been writing out my prayers in a notebook like this. I call it my prayer journal. And over the last 12 years or so, I've filled nearly 40 notebooks like this with written prayers to God. I found that's very helpful in just communicating with Him and, and, and talking with Him and sharing with Him what's been going on in my life. And if you were to read through these prayer journals, which I'm not going to give you the opportunity to do because, you know, they're kind of private um, between me and God primarily. But if you were to read through all these prayer journals, you'd find out that back in 2004, in the early part of the year, a significant shift was taking place in my life in a couple different ways. And these two different ways were really tied into each other. And the first shift that was taking place was that I had met this young woman named Shelly. And she'd really captured my heart. You know how that happens sometimes. And, and I was very interested in pursuing a deeper relationship with her. That was the first change that was in the works at that point. And the second change that was taking place at that time was that I was beginning to address God as Father. There you see all 40 of these notebooks. Uh, I was beginning to address God as Father during that time. And as I said, those two changes were were intertwined with one another. 
Let me explain why. You see, as I was considering the possibility of pursuing a deeper relationship with Shelley, I was recognizing that she was not simply some random woman out there who, who I wanted to ask out on a date just for the fun of it. I recognized that she is a daughter of God, that God is her father, and that I need to be talking with him to get his approval and to get his direction in terms of any possible relationship that we may have with one another. And it was in that context, as I was thinking in, in late January about this possibility of pursuing a deeper relationship with her and recognizing that she is a daughter of God, that recognized the importance of coming to God as a father. Let me read to you what I wrote one day. This was actually on January 24th of 2004. I said, Lord, Father, it's funny how I usually don't call you Father, but right now that seems like the most appropriate title. And I went on to talk with my Heavenly Father about dating his daughter, Shelley. And that was the first time I really addressed uh, God as Father in my prayers. I'd been a Christian for about five years at that point, and, and when I started off my prayers, I'd usually start, Dear God, or Lord, or something like that, and I had this, this focus on God in, in terms of His glory and His power and His majesty, but I wasn't quite as focused on the intimacy that He wants to have with us. And I definitely had a close relationship with God, but I wasn't addressing God as Father. But over the next few days, I began addressing God as Father more and more. Three days later, I said, uh, Father... I'm glad I'm calling you Father more. And then I went and had to continue to pray at that point. And if you were to read my prayer journals, you'd find that in the weeks, to months, weeks and months to follow, I continued to address God as Father more and more to the point where now if you read my more recent prayer journals, you'd find that the vast majority of the time I'm addressing God as Father. And that is, it seems like a small shift, but it's also a very significant shift in my walk with God. Now, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, in what we know as the Lord's Prayer, he, he started a very similar shift in terms of how they address God. He said, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. And this was a very radical change from what typically took place in prayers of that day. Most Jews in that day would address God with these very exalted titles like addressing him as God Most High or Sovereign Lord. And these are certainly acceptable and appropriate titles with which to address God. But when Jesus was teaching about prayer, he's saying, you don't just come to God as some sovereign guy, but you also come to him in intimacy as your Heavenly Father. And this was a huge change in that time. Um, back when I was in seminary, I had a professor named Dr. Manich, and that's how I typically like to call my professors, Dr. So-and-so. But this particular professor preferred that people call him by his first name. And so when I'd go and address him as Dr. Manich, he'd say, no, just call me Scott. And it was really interesting to observe just my own thoughts about him and how when you drop that formal title, it really creates a greater sense of warmth and care and connection with someone like that. And so, so I would call him Scott, even though it felt kind of strange because I'm used to calling him Dr. Manich. But I would call him Scott. But, but that's kind of what Jesus was doing here. He's saying, when we come to God, we don't have to come with all these formal titles or anything like that, but come to him as a father. Not, not, not even as a warm professor or a caring friend. Certainly not as some sort of domineering dictator or a cosmic killjoy, as some people think he is. But come to him as a father. 
The word that, that Jesus uses here for father is the word Abba. Abba in that time was the term that a child, was a very common term that a child would use in addressing his or her dad in the, in, in the intimacy of their home. And so Jesus says, come to him as Abba, as dad, or even as daddy. Now, when people talk about God as Father, it elicits a variety of different emotions. For some people, talking about God as Father creates a lot of negative emotions, oftentimes stemming back to some sort of challenging or broken relationship that they had with their earthly father. Now, realistically, oftentimes our our experience with our earthly father is projected onto our views of our heavenly father. And, And to be sure, there are a lot of earthly fathers whose lives are not worth emulating, fathers who are abusive or who are absent or who, who were simply workaholics, and they weren't around very much, or maybe there simply wasn't much warmth in that relationship. And it's easy in those times, if your earthly father didn't have a really close, loving relationship with you, it's easy to project that onto our heavenly father. But we need to recognize that whatever type of relationship we had with our earthly father, it doesn't necessarily negate the love that our heavenly father has for us. God longs to have a relationship with us. We see even back in Genesis 1 and 2 that we were created to have an intimate, joyful, personal relationship with God. That's how he created man and woman. So when we come to God in prayer, as Jesus instructs us, coming to him as our Father, we can have the confidence that not only does he hear our prayers, but that he loves us very deeply and he delights in hearing our prayers. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my immediate family, Shelly and our kids, we were down in Missouri visiting the rest of my family, my parents, sister, brother-in-law, uh, the rest of the extended family. And one morning as we were there in Missouri, we were um, just sitting there eating breakfast and Shelly was talking with my parents about a variety of topics, including work and parenthood. And in the context of that conversation, my dad made a very interesting, a very thought-provoking statement about parenthood. He said that when, when his kids, my sister and I, were still quite young, maybe like three years old and six years old, something like that, that he came to the realization that the most enjoyment he could have in life was spending time with his kids. The most enjoyment that he could have in life was spending time with his kids. He realized that, you know, golf is fun, but it doesn't compare with spending time with your kids unless you're golfing with them. Um, Spending time with friends, it's still nice, but spending time with kids trumps that every time. Now, kids aren't always easy, but, but I think this, what my dad's statement about the enjoyment of spending time with your children gives us a glimpse into the heart of our Heavenly Father, that he delights and spending time with us. He delights in talking with us when we pray with him. He delights simply in being with us because he is our Abba Father. Dear God, I don't understand how you consider yourself to be an intimate father for me. This statement, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, is a contradiction. Your name is Yahweh, and this is a name given to no one else. No one else deserves it. And with jealousy, you protect your right to your name. 
Misusing the name of Yahweh was considered blasphemy among your chosen people and was grounds for execution. Ancient scholars and scribes, when they were copying scripture, they were so cautious and intentional with giving your name the respect that it deserves that when they came to write your name Yahweh, they would throw their pen away and they would use a new one to show you that respect. To claim to be you was considered the worst sin possible. And it's ultimately what put your son on the cross. And it is in righteousness that you are jealous of your name. For only you are worthy of the honor and the glory that your title brings you. For anyone else to be called by your name would be a drastic misplacement of worship and a major slap in your face. That is why your name is holy. To be holy means to be set apart. God, you are set apart, and there's no comparison to your majesty and your glory. No one or no thing has your infinite power or your creative ability. You are unique in every way. You are perfect, you are righteous, you are just, and you are faithful. You are surrounded by angels up in heaven whose only purpose is to declare your holiness over and over and over and over again. In Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, Isaiah tells us about a vision he had of you. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, which two wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorsteps and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Who is like you, God? Your holiness also means that you are set apart from sin. You are untouched and unstained from the evil that is in this world. Job 34.12 says, It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Never in eternity past, nor present, nor eternity future, has an improper thought entered your mind. Every word you have ever spoken is true and pure. And your actions are without flaw or mistake. God, I don't understand how you can consider yourself to be an intimate father for me because I am so unlike you. In Genesis 1 and 2, I read about how I was created to be in your But I live out the fall in Genesis 3 over and over again. You made me to reflect your character, but like a circus mirror, I distort your glory. I am the manifestation of everything that you needed to be separated from. I echo the cry of David in Psalm 51 when he says, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the day my mother conceived me. God, it feels like every step I take is a trespass where I willingly step over the boundaries you have set for me. And every thought is filled with iniquity. And every word I speak 
misses the mark of your perfect sinless standard for me. In Isaiah 6 verse 5, Isaiah's response to that vision of seeing your glory was to declare, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And in Luke 5, when Peter first met Jesus, Jesus enabled Peter to catch a miraculous catch of fish. And when Peter realized that he was in the presence of you, he declared, go away from me. Lord, I am a sinful man. Both Peter and Isaiah realized that your holiness and my sinfulness does not mix. God, you are holy and I am sinful. I do not understand how you can consider yourself to be an intimate father to me. As we're talking about this idea of of our Father in heaven, holy be your name or holy is your name, we do have to recognize that, that we are very sinful people. And that does create a separation between us and the holy God. I think that if we went around this room and forced everyone to share, to put like an x-ray on their heart, uh, and not, not that it physically shows their heart and valves and stuff, but that shows what's going on in there, I think that we could, would all have to share humiliating examples of sin in our lives, both in the past and even in the present, that, you know, sin that's ugly, sin that, that hurts others, sin that creates that separation between us and God. We all have that sin in our lives, and it does ultimately separate us from our holy God, or our holy heavenly Father, if that sin is not addressed. But sin does not have the final word. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. He says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it says that at just the right time when we were still powerless, that right time was simply you know, the time that we were not able to help ourselves, that we were powerless. There was nothing we could do to rebuild that relationship with God because of our sin. It was at just that right time when we were powerless, when we were still ungodly, that Christ died for us. Paul points to the pinnacle of human love as giving your life in sacrifice to save someone else. It says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. This religious guy who does everything right says, very rarely will anyone die for that type of person. Though for a good man or a good woman, someone who's gracious and generous and kind, someone might possibly dare to die. I mean, you think about, um, you know, someone may put their life on the line for a spouse or for a child or for a combat buddy. But no one will put their lives in the line for someone who hates them, who has turned their back on them, who's drugged their name through the mud. But Paul says that's exactly what God has done. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's holiness is absolutely terrifying when, uh, when we see our sin accurately. But when we look to the cross of Christ, we can also see God's grace and God's mercy. Second Corinthians 5.21 shows, shows a really interesting exchange that takes place. Second Corinthians 5.21 says um, that God made him, meaning Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. There was an exchange that took place 2,000 years ago where when Jesus went to the cross, he took our sin. He identified himself with our sin. He bore the penalty for our sin. And then we got the great end of the exchange of he gave us his righteousness. He was God himself, come to earth in human form. He lived an absolutely perfect life. He was righteous, and he passed that righteousness on to us. So now when God sees us, if our faith is in Christ, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't hold our sin against us. He sees the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. Now, not everyone in world history has ever uh, experienced this exchange. The only way that we can experience the benefits of this exchange is through trusting Christ, coming to Christ and saying, you know what, Jesus, I've blown it. I've messed up. I've rebelled against God so many times. There's absolutely no way I'm powerless to rebuild that relationship with God. I need you to pay my penalty. Thank you that you have taken my sin to the cross, and I am committing myself to following you from here on out. That is how we experience the benefits of that exchange of Christ taking our sin and us receiving his righteousness. Now, the glory of this is that it shows exactly how holy God is. Because God did not negate his holiness. He did not set his holiness aside in order to bring us into his family as sinful people. His holiness and justice was satisfied when Christ paid our penalty on the cross. But this also shows his great mercy and, and grace for us. Now, on our own, in our sin, we are all spiritual orphans. We've all rebelled against God, been separated from him, alienated from him. But through faith in Christ, he adopts us back into his family. Listen to the way that Paul puts it over in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. Paul said, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And so we see here that, that, that our sin may cause us fear before the Holy God, and justifiably so. But when we see what Christ has done for us and we place our faith in him, we're no longer separated from God. We no longer have to fear that sin. But Christ adopts us into, our, into his family again so that once again we are his children and we can call out to him, Abba, Father, just as Jesus instructs us at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Now here in my hand I have copies of two of the most precious documents, two of the most precious pieces of paper that we have in our house. They are adoption decrees for our children. They are the pieces of paper that legally make our children ours. And they are fully our children. That if you went to them and asked them, who is this guy right up here is talking right now, they would say that he is my daddy. If you ask me who they are, I would say they are my children. They're my son, my daughter. That I love them more than I can possibly imagine. And those adoption decrees are what make that whole relationship legal. But it's the love that's carried on through the years that makes it real and personal. Now, we have an adoption decree, too, from God. And that adoption decree came first through the cross that legally enables us to become God's children because Christ paid the penalty and the price that, that we needed to pay for our sin. And then he's given us his Holy Spirit, which testifies, Abba, Father, through us. Over in Galatians chapter 4, Paul speaks of this adoption decree that, that, that God has enacted. Galatians 4, 4 through 6 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, 
to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So if we trust in Christ, we've been washed clean and adopted into God's family so that we are his sons and daughters and and can call out to him, Abba, Father. All right, so I find it so amazing that Jesus starts off his teaching on prayer by highlighting the fact that God is both holy and personal. Because the truth is, like I said, those two statements seem to contradict each other. But they're true of our God. Both of them are true. And they are made possible. God's intimate, his desire for intimacy with us and his infinite holy nature Those two are made possible through the cross. Here's the crazy thing, though. If you think about it, the God of the Bible is the only God with those two characteristics. Think about it for a second. Allah, the God of Islam, he's holy, but he does not have an intimate relationship with his creation. How about the Greek gods from the ancient times? They weren't even close to holy. They had very human characteristics and were prone to human-like things and even sin. How about all the Hindu gods? There were so many of them, and they all have their different strengths and weaknesses and their flaws. They are not holy, and they don't really, aren't really personal either. The Mormon god is not holy. He desires intimacy, but he's not holy. All the other religions try to break this tension between a holy God and a personal God by choosing one side or the other. But both of these characteristics are really, really important. And they're really important when we pray. And when we pray, we need to keep both of them in mind. And I think this is the primary thing that we need to learn today from Jesus' message on our Father in heaven, holy is your name. So if you remember nothing else from today, remember this. When we pray, we are praying to a God who is both personal and holy. And our prayers should reflect both of these characteristics. Everything else stems from this first takeaway. And I think the biggest way that we can reflect God's holiness and his intimacy is that when we pray, we pray with faith. It's that we know that he loves us and he is powerful enough to do what's best for us. Therefore, when we pray, we don't have to come to God and say, hey God, um, maybe you can help me out a little bit if you'd like. No, we don't have to pray that way we can pray with confidence. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8. The two verses that precede Jesus giving us the Lord's Prayer. He said, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask it. 
Jesus here is giving us this idea that we don't have to use special words or manipulate God in our prayer. Prayer is about crawling into our daddy's arms, telling him exactly how we feel, being honest with him. He can take it. He's a big God. And we tell him and ask him what we need. And then in faith, we trust that he both loves us and is capable of doing what's best for us. One of the practical things that I think we can um, live this out, keeping God's holiness and his fatherliness in mind, is using an acronym um, that teaches us the four different purposes of prayer. I use ACTS because I think that helps me to remember, but you don't have to do it in any special order. If you're a cat lady, you could do cats. You could do stack or tax. Or if you're rebellious, you could do ktsa. But it's those four letters that help us to remember the different purposes of prayer. And those four, four purposes are adoration. Adoration is a big fancy word that means worship. When we pray, we should keep God's holiness in mind, his infinite majesty, and we should worship him through prayer. The second element is confession. That means that we're honest with God about the sins that we do in our life. That we don't try to hide them or belittle them or even beat ourselves up about them, but we just come to God and say, hey God, I messed up. Here's what I did wrong. Can you forgive the state of my sinful heart? The third is thanksgiving. This again goes back to God's holiness, his infinite Character. It's the idea that we realize that everything that we have is a blessing from God. And we want to show him gratitude for those things. And finally, supplication. Another big word that basically means to ask God for things. This idea comes back again to God's fatherliness. That he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And he promises to take care of us. And so we can come before him and ask him and present our requests to him. Finally, when we pray and we use God's name, we should treat it with the reverence and the respect that it deserves, showing that we personally care about the glory of our Father's name. When I think of using God's name, I often think of my mom and her china. My mom in her kitchen has this china cabinet um, that protects her china. And we really only ever use my mom's china on Easter and occasionally on some other special occasions. But my mom really cherishes her china. And when my sister and I were growing up, one of our chores was to always wash, wash dishes. And just because we use the china didn't mean we get exempt from doing the dishes. But my mom would always tell us, David and Melissa, you guys need to be very careful when you wash my china. Take care of it and try to make sure that it doesn't break. And it's not that my mom worshipped her china. It's just that she wanted to protect it and she considered it, its use was for special purposes. And I, I think that's how we should see God's name, is that we're not just using it carelessly, 
but that when we use God's name, that we're cherishing it and that we're seeing it as special and that we have a respect and a reverence for it. And one of the, I think, the practical ways that we can do that, or should I say that one of the ways that we don't do that very well, is in the phrase, oh my God. A lot of times when people use this phrase, they use it as just a random exclamation that uses God's name without really giving reference to it. And God cares about his name. And so much so that he gave us a commandment. Don't use my name in vain. You know? And I think in God's eyes, using the phrase, oh my God, is worse than saying the F word. Because it's taking God's name in vain. And God's name is reverent. And he cares about his name. And as Christians, as children of God, we should treat God's name with the respect and avoid using this phrase in a careless manner. The almighty and holy God who created us loves us more than we could ever imagine. And he, and he wants a relationship with us because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. We have been adopted into God's family. And when we pray, we can reverently talk to our father in confidence. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you because your name is holy. Your love is great. And your mercy overflows through the blood of your Son. Lord, in majesty, you sit in heaven with angels surrounding you. Lord, and you are so great that we have reason to honor you and worship you. Lord, we also know that everything that we have in our life comes from you. Lord, we thank you for that. And we give you gratitude and we want to show you gratitude with the way that we live. Lord, we confess that sometimes we don't come to you in confidence. Sometimes we forget who you are and how you are our Father and you love us. And sometimes we choose not to go to you when we should. Lord, we also confess that sometimes we don't treat your name with the reverence that it respects. And God, we're sorry for those things. Father, please help us to understand that you are both holy and desire an intimate, personal relationship with us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live those two characteristics of you out in the way that we live and in the way that we pray. Amen. Still
Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody, under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. 